0: listening to By The Well, a based podcast of preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people.
1: Welcome to By the Well, I'm Sean Winter
0: and I'm Fran Barber
1: and today we're going to be looking at a couple of texts relating to uh, the seventh Sunday in Easter, the uh, Sunday, the last Sunday of the Easter season prior to uh, the arrival of the season of Pentecost and we're going to be exploring in particular Acts chapter 1 verses 6 to 14 um, and John chapter 17 verses 1 to 11.
0: So we'll begin with the Acts reading, Sean. I'm wondering if you can orient us uh, to where we are here. It's the second reference of, in, of by Luke to the, to the Ascension.
1: It is, yeah. So um, we're at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, and Luke has uh, a couple of things that serve to kind of stitch the Acts of the Apostles, the second volume of his work, the story of the church, back into the story of Jesus that he tells in the Gospel of Luke. The first is the dedication in uh, Acts 1, to 1-5, which is dedicated to Theophilus. That relates quite strongly to the preface at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Um, and then the story of the gathering of the uh, disciples and Jesus being taken from them in a cloud, which retells, um, in a distinctive way actually, um, the story that Luke tells at the end of uh, the Gospel uh, and When we talk about it at the end of the Gospel, we very clearly talk about it as the Ascension. Mm. It's the same event being kind of spoken about here. But whereas the Ascension in Luke is really the culmination of the story of Jesus and his faithfulness to God and his um, obedience to the divine plan here in the Acts of the Apostles the ascension is really preparatory or um, in anticipation of the story of the church as that story unfolds um, after the events of Pentecost themselves.
0: Yeah that's a helpful
1: distinction. So we're here um, I think pretty much uh, dealing with a story that tells about the gathering of the disciples, them asking a particular question of Jesus um, and then not receiving an answer. And there's some ambiguity around this. A bit earlier on in chapter 1 and verse 3, we've been actually told that Jesus has been instructing them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. Um, That's a long lecture. That's a long lecture. Um, And strikingly, it seems that in those 40 days, the question of when the kingdom would come and the question of who the kingdom would come for didn't come up. Or if it did, they've forgotten what it is that Mm. Jesus has told them because they asked this question in chapter 6, is this the time, that's the when question, when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the who question. And really what the Acts of the Apostles is doing, I think, is framing for us um, the claim that the story itself will tell that the answers to those questions are now different in the light of the story of Jesus' resurrection and the ascension that's about to take place.
0: Yeah, Willie Jennings calls it the death of the nation, of a nationalist fantasy in his
1: commentary. So that's the that's the who, um, and I mean there are some scholarly debate about whether the focus really is on the is it now for Israel. It's very clear, though, that the promise that comes afterwards about the Holy Spirit and the command that's given about moving into all the world does break open um, the, the, the scope, really, of who uh, the kingdom is for and what that will look like. So we no longer have the promise to, the, to Israel itself, but we have the church taking the promise to the ends of the earth, absolutely.
0: Which, I've, yes, which Willie Jennings, I think, calls a revolution of the intimate which sounds strangely paradoxical because it's going further and further out, but it's that the embrace of all the others, of all others together in this new community, I think okay. he was referring to. Right. And when he talks about um, uh, the death of the nationalist fantasy, he's very clear that it's not an ethnic or a geographical boundary – Um, although here clearly it's Israel. Uh, It's about the human tendency to want to close off and to be in control and um, that violence is usually the means by which that's done. So this is the start of a whole new revolution and and existence in in relationship with each other.
1: I think these are really important dimensions of a text like the Acts of the Apostles, which, of course, when we sit the other side of the story as... Gentiles in Australia, kind of a thing. We we don't kind of see the the level at which these are texts that are genuinely engaging with, um, you know, the realities of territory and land, mm. the realities of ethnicity and race, and the realities of culture, and uh, the way in which that 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 none of our New Testament texts can escape those realities. They're all engaging with them and all carving a path through them by asking the question, well, what does the way of Jesus look like as it unfolds across these boundaries, across um, these points of difference between, uh, between people? The Acts of the Apostles as a, a narrative tells that story over and over again in multiple different ways and in multiple different locations, cultures, etc.
0: But you highlight the importance and the art of the preacher to... Uh, recreate those contexts but not have that dominate the the good news that's being shared. So yes. you have to I mean you know the starkness of the message as you, you, you indicate, is a bit lost on us because we 're Gentiles in Australia and all those distinctive boundaries we don 't live with those those ones in the text yep. um, and therefore the radicality of what 's happening here can be lost on us, so there is a certain art in a, trying to recapture that for people
1: look I, th- I think this is we 're on a quite an interesting point here. I was actually talking about it in my own church last Sunday in relation to Matthew's Great Commission. We often regard what's being described here at the opening of Acts as primarily something that's geographical. Mm. The Gospel starts in Jerusalem and it kind of ends up at the ends of the earth, mm. wherever that might be. Mm. The story of Acts ends up in Rome. The Roman Empire kind of ends in Spain. Whether Luke knows anything beyond that is a, is a moot point, I think. But the point is that territory and geography in the ancient world as today – Aren't ends in and of themselves? They're markers of difference, of uh, culture, of diversity, of tension, of boundaries and of borders, of power. power, of all of those things, of empire. So, um, so it's—I uh, mean—the illustration I was giving when people think about the ending of the Gospel of Matthew, very often that ending is read as we should all go into all the world, mm. right? Whereas actually, what the text says is. Make disciples of all nations, which is an ethnic term. <laughs> so the question isn't how far should we go or where should we go next? Mm. The mission question is what does the way of Jesus look like as it makes its way through this culture, across this cultural border, into this different and distinctive um, place and space in the world? I think that's a, a really um, provocative mission question mm. that we can ask for ourselves, you know, even if. We don't think our calling is to be missionaries and go to other parts of the world.
0: And is that distinction you're drawing there um, less provocative or potentially violent than the first reading?
1: Oh, I think it's susceptible to all yeah, sorts of violence. it sounds
0: and, more creative to me and s- nuanced.
1: Yeah, but it's, it, it places the focus not on what am I taking to what other pl- place. Yeah, where, there it, where it is not. <laughs> That's right, but what does this look like? in this context and this context and this context. And I think we can, you know, preachers need to think that through in relationship to their own localized context. Mm. What what does the way of Jesus look like in the boundaries and the borders and the intersections and the diversity of our own local communities? so space is space the spatial geographical side of this is one thing but the other thing this is about is about the question of time Mm. Um, and uh, we have this thing that the disciples ask the question and Jesus gives them an answer Mm. that says you don't have to know and then Mm. Jesus is caught up in um, uh, a cloud in this kind of uh, event which again is spatial Um, they look up (laughs) um, they see Jesus taken away We need to work out what we want to do with that spatial imagery. and Some people prefer to take it literally. Some people, of course, understand it to be reflection of an ancient worldview. Mm. But I think the idea is that they're kind of left gazing there. And really what that ascension is is a question mark against their assumption that now is the time or that something is going to happen now that God is going to do to wrap things up, bring the kingdom, restore Israel to its former glory or whatever else. Instead, they're given an instruction and a a promise.
0: Yeah, right. There's something quite paradoxical, and not surprisingly, because it's to do with the gospel, and profound about that time and space uh, dynamic. And I'm thinking about the particularity of Jesus, the particularity of the place he's from, the particularity of where he is now, and that in this story he's not there anymore. He's with God, which means he's in all places, <laughs> yep. including with us in our own particularity now. Right. So it's a bit mind-blowing. It sort, it sort of sounds circular and in some sense meaningless at one level, but actually, as I say, it's quite a profound um, idea.
1: Yeah. So so Luke doesn't do away with the temporal time question. Um, what Luke does does in the way that he works with eschatology which is the you know when is when is jesus coming back question is that he creates space for other questions to be explored in the anticipation of that mm. return and those questions are to be explored in the light of two realities the first is that jesus is ascended uh, to the right hand of the father and there's a um you know the point where, for example, Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter seven—that's the vision that he has of Jesus at God's right hand. But then the other, of course, is the gift of the Holy Spirit present to equip the disciples in their calling to take um, the or bring the kingdom into these wider territories of you know Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends uh, of the earth. So I think that's right. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not. It's not Trinitarian. Well, it maybe is trinit- proto-Trinitarian, embryonic, embryonic in yeah. the way that we, we think about it. But the Spirit is the key thing here, and the Spirit is the key thing as Luke thinks about the story of the church as the church unfolds.
0: Mm. The disciples' um, failure to understand we've mentioned first up with regard to that opening question, yeah. but it's also implied too, isn't it, when they were watching, um, they asked, what they say, suddenly... To um, where's the, they, they ask a question. That's right. Why do you stand up looking towards heaven? Which is an echo of the women at the tomb, who are then asked, "What are, why, you, looking, what are you looking for?" for yeah, yeah. yeah, amongst the living, amongst the dead. So there's this. I find that very, uh, you know, quite a powerful um, parallel of, of their ongoing failure to grasp.
1: So I, th- I think that what's interesting is to ask the question whether the angels, angelic figures, are saying you shouldn't be looking there. Uh, d- stop! Stop yeah, looking yeah. up into heaven, or whether what they're saying is, having looked there, why, you, why, why are you hanging around? Because if you understand what it is that you're seeing, you've now got a job to do. Mm. So I think that raises, you know, interesting questions about the relationship between worship and mission. For example, that we might that a preacher might explore with a congregation. What does mm. it mean to spend time, um, in worship of the risen Christ? Um. But what do, how does that worship actually impel us and compel us into uh, a life of um, sharing God's love under the mm. inspiration of the Spirit in the world? Yeah. They then gather, just finally, uh, they gather um, back to Jerusalem. They come down from the mountain um, and uh, we get a kind of regathering of the disciple community and pretty much the same set of names that are gathered at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. But then also with uh, Mary and with the mother, um, uh, Mary and with Jesus' brothers as well. It's striking that James, the brother of Jesus, who becomes a leader in that community, isn't mentioned Mm -hmm. um, at this point. Um, And then they devote themselves to this process of waiting um, to uh, to prayer. Uh, One of the things that struck me is that um, the NRSV in particular kind of doesn't translate one of the key words here. So Luke uses the word in verse fourteen. Um, all of them were constantly devoting themselves. And the word all, there's actually a really interesting word which means kind of of one accord or in agreement with one another. And this is a really important thing for Luke, um, that in the light of your understanding of Christ having ascended and the promise of the Holy Spirit, there's a kind of solidarity Mm -hmm. in the life of prayer and in the life of mission that will... Be explored in the story of Acts, and I think that's um, something that we can continue to bear in mind as well. Mm,
0: it is a repeated refrain in Acts. I mean, I, sometimes that's sort of all, and all of them were doing this, and they were all sharing possessions together, and they were all
1: that's right, you know. Yeah, it's and arguably it's a kind of utopian yes. vision of happy families, um, which we know probably wasn't the historical reality, but at it's all. the
0: imperative of what they've behind on them after what they've seen, yeah, and experienced.
1: I, and and it's the seedbeds of later developments of the doctrines of you know the church's small sea catholicity for example yeah that's probably enough about that's acts we enough. should move on to uh, to john
0: so before us is john 17, 1 to 11 where john 17 we are in the farewell discourse uh, in john's gospel and really to my mind anyway the summation of the Christological event <laughs> and the whole gospel. <laughs> for Pretty John. much
1: any part of the Gospel of John sums Sum up the up. whole of the Gospel of John. But, in some
0: but way. this sums up. they summing up. Yeah, oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> so um, we've got uh, phrases that are ascension-like. Even John doesn't have an ascension as we understand it in the yep. in the synoptics, but we have um, Jesus praying with the disciples looking up to heaven and. One of the things that struck me in this passage um, was the intimate picture of Jesus praying, yes, but not on his own, but with this community of disciples who are uh, presumably um, distressed, uncertain, mm. disbelieving, um, scared.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the, the form of what we have across John 13 to 17 is. Um, suggests something of that intimacy we uh, it seems to conform to a certain degree to what we uh, often call the form of a testament and a a testament in hebrew bible and other jewish traditions we have um, jewish texts called the testaments of the 12 patriarchs for example a testament form is basically when a patriarch or a really important person is dying in their final days um, and their family or their followers or those close to them um, are going to have to contemplate the prospect of them not being there. And they kind of gather them round mm. the deathbed almost and give final instructions and convey final blessings. And very often they end with some kind of prayer um, in the way that those Testaments are described. John 17 is a kind of extended version of that prayer, that final prayer in the Testament form. And it really is a way, as all these chapters are, of trying to help people reflect on what we do with the problem of the absence of Jesus, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's a striking uh, way of thinking about you know the resurrection from our perspective. Of course, resurrection faith is about living with the risen presence of Jesus, but resurrection faith begins with a struggle to live with the physical absence mm. of the historical Jesus and uh, how we begin to think about that and what the role of the Holy Spirit is in in, in that period. So intimacy is exactly right and the language of kind of um, mutual relationship between Jesus and God, God and Jesus, Jesus and the disciples, God and the disciples and then of course ultimately the disciples and one another, they may be one mm. just as I and the Father are one, that's shot through every part of this chapter.
0: So it strikes me as a, I think it's Caroline Lewis who writes a bit about this, a really fruitful avenue for a sermon is to take this very seriously as a model of prayer and that doesn't mean you write more generalities about prayer and certainly not um, a spin on how we should all be doing it more and in a certain way, which is not a good news sermon, uh, but more what is actually happening here and, you know, as I say, it's, it's around a table, it's intimate, it's Remarkable that to, for these disciples to be hearing their beloved leader praying for them in their own hearing, and and what that can open up about our own communities of prayer and uh, how we we might do, we do that for one another.
1: Yeah, I mean, a couple of things there. So it's it's often called the high priestly prayer. Mm. And priestly prayer, of course, is precisely prayer that one person says but that other people participate in in the saying of it. So um, it kind of gives an example of how representative prayer Mm. might be exercised. But the other thing is a number of people have suggested that it really is John's version of the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, Um, And I think that's a really interesting way of thinking through what's going on here. The Lord's Prayer, of course, is a profoundly... Jewish prayer there's almost nothing of any specific kind of Mm. christian or christological content in it whereas john typically for john's gospel takes that tradition and perhaps even the language of jesus himself and kind of reworks it with this profoundly christological um depth and layers of meaning involved but it has many of the same components it begins by addressing god in heaven yeah um the language of um, hallowing God's name becomes this language of glorification. Um, rather than the kingdom of God coming, it's the hour that comes, etc., etc. There's a number of different parallels, and a good commentary will point them out to you. Do you, uh, When you read it, Fran, do you... Uh, I mean, one of the things that puzzles me sometimes, or I struggle with, is some of the abstract language that John loves, and the dominant term particularly in the first eight verses. By the way, the lectionary absolutely destroys the structural divisions of this chapter. As the, usual. As usual. <laughs> so so um, you'll just have to bear with um, the way that the lectionary picks the first 11 verses out. But a dominant term is this language of glory, glorification, glory that the Father has, that the Father gives to the Son. What do you think that language of glory is about?
0: Well, I struggle with it because it is... We don't really talk about glory culturally, do we? I mean, maybe in the sporting arena we do, so it's about putting people on a pedestal for a certain skill and prowess and, and so on, which doesn't really work here. No, 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 I don't <laughs> think so. This is a reframing of that. Um, I kind of – and this is just playing imaginatively with, Lee with it, but it is, it, it is to me a bit like – The sticky stuff that that brings all these relationships together by virtue of God, God's glory, is reflected in in Jesus wholeheartedly, and then is reflected for and in us. So there's something about it. I'm not, you know, about it being a binding agent in our relationships, but not us equally. Obviously, we are. We may we may reflect the glory of God, I guess. Yeah, yeah. As we grow closer to
1: Christ,
0: that's how I see it, but you may have another.
1: Well, I I think so that language of of glory reflected or glory mirrored, I think that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis and the Mm. fact that humanity created in the image and glory of God. Um, It has something to do with identity and particularly about the way in which identity is recognised and affirmed by others. Mm. So we use it as language of, oh, wow, you're really wonderful. Mm, yeah. But here I think it means more like...
0: Oh, wow, you know, it's really you?
1: Yeah, that's it, it exactly. Yeah, God, it, it, as in God. God yes. is actually God. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, and, and what the language of glory does is talking again in the Hebrew Bible, when God's glory, it's the revelation of that mm. identity. It's that identity, not hidden or abstract, but that identity seen and revealed and to a certain extent, Perceived and understood, and I think, and witnessed, yeah.
0: I'm having a little reflection with the reading we just looked at through our colleague Robin's article about Luke and the Ascension, and she talks about the Greco-Roman culture and the deification of emperors and how part of that ritual was um, what's crucial to that recognition is the witnesses of the people. So she talks about Julius Caesar's death where there was a star appear and a belief that he was that star, yeah. which... <clears throat> Which um, proved that he is godlike, mm. and so then uh, thereafter there were many accounts of emperors being god. Um, but that what's crucial to that is a spectator is the witnessing community seeing that identity. So I know this isn't Luke, obviously it's John, but I still hear I can hear that dynamic happening of the the recognition of identity.
1: So the the Johannine take on that is that it's not a star in heaven it's the crucified body of israel's messiah that Mm. that that that, that figures or makes present the identity of god in a distinctive way so the language of glorification um related particularly to the language of the hour in chapter 17 Mm. um that goes all the way back to john chapter 12 where kind of at the last point of his public ministry Jesus kind of speaks in this Shakespearean soliloquy about you know the hour has come father glorify your name and very and the voice comes from heaven saying I have glorified it and I will glorify it again and very clearly the arrival of the hour is the arrival of the moment of Jesus arrival in Jerusalem the story of the passion and the crucifixion in particular is the lifting up, the glorification, the exaltation um, of Christ, not just as an end in itself, but because of who Christ is as a revelation of God's own identity that can be born witness to by others. That's Mm. absolutely right.
0: Before we finish, I think it's probably good to point to the other focus. Well, there are many. One other focus in this passage, and that's verse 3, about the definition of eternal life Um, and what to know to know you is eternal life what does it mean to know in john's gospel and that it's not cognitive statements of belief but um a relationship and that conversation about glory actually does play into yeah. to this recognition thing but also that if it's relationship then what does that look like in the gospel of john and it that there's that the, the intimacy of the of the crying at the death of Lazarus and it's the healing of um, oh, the meeting of the woman at the well and being receiving a drink from her there's I think quite a a rich scene to follow there about what knowledge in John's Gospel and yeah. eternal life actually looks like
1: so, so quite clearly um, it's not propositional or intellectual no. knowledge I think that's right um, and I mean, it relates back to all the things you've just been saying. So the language of seeing is a way of talking about knowing um, very often in the gospel and elsewhere. The other term that John uses in relation to this is, and in relation to eternal life, is the word to believe, the, the verb to believe. Um, and, I mean, I'm now at the point where I think translating either the noun Faith or belief, or the verb to have faith or to believe, is kind of a bit inadequate. And because what's always conveyed in the ancient world by that term "pistis, pistuo," is the notion of relationship, allegiance, loyalty, trust—not as a passive thing, but as a, a, a engagement a, a with engagement another, engagement with, and commitment yeah. to another. That's exactly right. Um, and I think that's what John means by knowing Christ. It's not just. Knowing it in your head, it is about f- the fullness of your allegiance to and engagement to Christ to, as the revelation of the Father.
0: And there's something quite liberating in the 21st century to me in hearing that because we can, we are, we do get hung up on the um, sort of statement of, of belief, yep. understanding of faith, and yep. there is a place for yep. thinking about that, yep. but how much freeing it is to say i'm here believing with you i am seeking assent to this amazing story as you do with you there's something communal and provisional and promissory or about it rather than closed off
1: yeah um so i mean here it has a very simple definition what you are to know is that god is god um and that jesus is the one that god sent um, you know, uh, it's you that could, simple, folks. You can construct a whole systematic <laughs> theology on the basis of those terms, but uh, the understanding of the terms in an intellectual sense isn't the point. No. The point is whether this is something that you would stake your life on <laughs> and what that might look like in the world. So I, I think that is really helpful for preachers as we think about, well, okay we're now in the season of easter christ is risen we're now moving into the season of pentecost and we're going to ask questions about well what is the call and the vocation of the church under the leading of the spirit um and while questions of theology and theological orthodoxy and exploring all of those questions are absolutely crucial in the end there's an existential question at at stake for all of us who do we belong to what story is our story? Um, what is it that we're committed to and how does that work out? And where
0: does our story fit into and that? And
1: when does our story fit into the story of God in Jesus Christ?
0: And that should close us today. That's great. Thanks, friend. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.